Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome. Good morning to those who are joining us online. Glad you guys are here and able to be with us. A couple of things we want to be praying for. Uh, we want to, if you've been on the prayer email list, uh, you saw that Randy's brother-in-law, Joseph, was diagnosed with cancer, and he's been in the hospital for a number of weeks now. Um, they had to, I guess, determine it was cancer, and then they had to get him strong enough to operate. So we want to be praying for Joseph, uh, Randy's sister, Teresa, just that they would be strengthened through this time, and hopefully um, the cancer can be dealt with with the operation. And so be praying for Joseph. Um, Thankfully, Mary's brother, Larry, seems to be doing much better, so grateful for that. Sue was not able to go to Lake Havasu with the family for vacation. Uh, ben said, though, it's probably it was good because it was very hot and the place where they at didn't really have a view by the lake. And so um, they're heading back now. And she went from the hospital to, I think, be with her brother. And so we want to be praying for her uh, continually that the Lord would comfort her and the family at this time. Um, So let's pause, let's pray, and this morning we're going to talk about salvation. So I hope that we can lean into this conversation and be open to all that it means. And I think even the idea of healing is part of what that salvation is about. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. We are reminded in scripture that it is a day that you have made that we can rejoice and be glad in it and being glad even when there are people that we love going through difficult things for Joseph and Sue battling cancer Lord we pray that your presence your goodness would be tangible to them where they are. For you're the God who sees, you're the God who weeps, you're the God who cares and loves. And Lord, may we be like you. To these people and to those around us, Father, may we bring salvation to all those around us and allow it to shape our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I got a question for you guys. Are you saved? Now, What came to your mind when you heard that? What thoughts? I didn't want you to think about it too much. I wanted the first thought. Salvation. Salvation. What what does that mean? 
everyone's like, I don't want to step into this. I'll start, okay? If you're like me, some of you I know are in that same kind of predicament, grew up with an understanding that saved meant that you accepted Jesus in your life. The question saved from what or saved for what would probably mean I was saved from hell and now I'm going to heaven. And I know that's simplistic, but that's a lot of times where our minds can go. Does that resonate with anyone? Is that similar to maybe what you've heard in the past? Um, I don't want to minimize, and this is important, I don't want to minimize the importance of making a decision to follow Jesus. I don't think by talking about salvation in a, a broader sense, we have to do that. And so please bear that in mind. But I think this definition that I gave of salvation is far short of what is presented in Scripture. And I hope that it at least provokes our imagination to think of salvation in a way that I believe was thought of back when it was written and how it can be lived into today with us. And I want to start with looking back into the Old Testament because our ideas of so many things, of, you know, Messiah, of what it means to uh, have faith really are born from that place in scripture and are presented through Jesus who was a part of that culture. And so the main saving act of God in the Old Testament is the liberation from Egypt. That is something that dominates the narrative. When we went through the book of Exodus, we talked about how so much of that story takes place in those first books, how it's just the dominating story. And in Exodus chapter 14, verse 29, it says, but the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Continues in Exodus 15, verse 2. Was there looking back, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. How did he become their salvation? By delivering us from the Egyptians. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, he is known as the God who delivered us from Egypt. Again, it's central to their narrative. It's how God saved. He saved them from battles. He saved them from political skirmishes with the nations nearby. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, The Israelites said to Samuel, the prophet, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us so that he will save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there are also times where Israel was seeking forgiveness, right? 
So salvation can also be from themselves. Or to put it another way, sometimes the rescuing wasn't from the human enemy, but the rescuing was from themselves. And so Psalm 51, a very popular psalm, verse 10, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. What is that salvation? That salvation is the enjoyment of the relationship, the covenant with their God. And Israel looked forward to that final day of judgment where God would destroy their enemies and restore Israel into a place of security. We see Zechariah chapter 9, verse 16. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people, for they are like jewels in a crown, sparkling over his land. I'm going to be using a lot of scripture here because whenever you're going to teach heresy, that's what you need to do. I'm just joking. I'm just trying to give you a backup of where I'm coming from. I can't overemphasize this enough. The point that salvation in the Old Testament had nothing to do with avoiding hell or going to heaven. Israel's salvation was shaped by covenant. And remember, a covenant is an agreement with someone. It's not an agreement to a contract. It is an agreement to a relationship that you are establishing with that person. So to be saved by God was to live in peace with God and harmony with others. And in that sense, salvation was not a one and done event. It was the beginning of the way life should be. And so it was something that was supposed to continue. And and this carries on in the New Testament. But first, I think it's important to understand the word salvation in the Greco-Roman world, because it wasn't, again, a religious word. It was a word that was common. And it's so important to understand the culture and how these words were used so that we can get a deeper feel for what's happening. I mean, can you imagine a hundred years ago if someone were to say, yeah, I think Jesus is cool. They would think he had a low body temperature, right? I mean, they wouldn't know what that meant. It wouldn't make any sense to them because the culture is so different and it affects the language. And the same thing is true when we look back. So if we can pause maybe the way we've thought about being saved or a savior or salvation for a moment, and allow what was understood by that word to shape how we understand some of the passages today. And I'm not trying to tell you this is the way it is, but I want us to be open to the possibility that there is a lot more here than maybe we grew up hearing. And maybe it will benefit us to take hold of that, and to read through Scripture with that lens. The Greeks and Romans' sense of salvation was wrapped in the 
unequal back and forth relationship with the gods and the mortals, right? The humans paid respect and homage to the gods and in return, they blessed and protected them. They saved them from disaster. Zeus was sometimes called savior and liberator. Apollo as a patron of medicine and prophecy could also be invoked with the title of savior. And what did salvation mean? Well, we learn from one inscription that was an insightful prayer that was a prayer to Zeus. May Zeus, Savior, receive this account favorably and grant in return the benefits of health, safety, peace, and security on land and sea. So this idea of a Savior was someone who protected them, provided health, safety, peace, security. Those are all kind of part of their understanding of what this role of savior was to be. Salvation is understood here as a total package of protection and well-being. And in the age of the Roman emperors, we see the savior language was used and applied liberally to those who were rulers. Julius Caesar was publicly hailed savior and benefactor. Why? Because of the role he played to the nation. And it's not different in scope, really, to what we saw in the Old Testament. God delivered them from Egypt. Caesar is delivering them from the other enemies around them. And so there's this similar correlation that's taking place. There's a famous inscription pronounced that pronounced Augustus Savior, who will cause wars to cease and will order all things. And again, salvation, whether from a God or from a Lord, was viewed as protective guardianship, sheltering the vulnerable from harm and also promoting their welfare and increasing their quality of life. That was salvation. Now, Whether or not the gods or rulers actually accomplish these things is a whole other story, right? But the idea of saving or rescuing in the Greco-Roman world was viewed as a guardianship, a relationship meant to secure, protect, and promote flourishing. That had all these things part of that word. A good ruler was meant to be gracious, was supposed to be generous, supposed to be kind towards their subjects. Not all rulers were, of course, but this was the idea. If you were in this position, you were to provide this. If you were going to be the savior, then you had to do these things for your people. Seneca wrote to Emperor Nero his advice for the newly crowned emperor. When he was crowned, he wrote this On clemency, Seneca recognized the incredible power of the emperor and sovereign over the empire, even positioning Nero as a god upon earth. We see that in clemency 1.1. And so in his hands, he writes, lie the power of life and death. Seneca voices the authority of the imperial seat. It rests with me, the emperor, to decide which tribes shall utterly be exterminated and which shall be moved into other lands, which shall receive and which shall be deprived of liberty, what kings shall be reduced to slavery and whose heads shall be crowned, what cities shall be destroyed and what new ones shall be founded. 
This was the rule, or the rule, the position of the ruler, the emperor. So with such glory resting on his crown, it is all the more urgent that he be patient and kind. And this position of enormous power, I am not tempted to punish men unjust by anger, by youthful impulse, by the recklessness of insolence of men, which often overcomes the patience even of the best regulated minds, not even that terrible vanity so common among great sovereigns of displaying my power by inspiring terror. My sword is sheathed, nay, fixed in its sheath, I am sparing of the blood, even of the lowest, my subjects. A man who has nothing else to recommend him will nevertheless find favor in my my eyes because he is a man. I keep harshness concealed, but I have clemency always at hand. I watch myself as carefully as though I had to give an account of my actions to those laws which I have brought out of the darkness and neglect into the light of day. I have been moved to compassion by the youth of one culprit and the age of another. I have spared one man because of his great place, another on the account of his insignificance. When I could find no reason for showing mercy, I have had mercy on myself. I am prepared this day, should the gods demand it, to render to them an account of the human race. That was a writing to Nero. Now, we know Nero didn't follow most of that. He's kind of a horrible dude. But what an incredible description of a ruler, someone who had this authority to take off your head or to crown it, to forgive you or to hold you accountable. But these words give us insight into an understanding. So in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas are worshiping and their prison cell and the gates are opened and the prison guard finds that the gates are all open and he's going to kill himself because he thinks he's going to be responsible and they're going to end up killing him and they say stop 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 don't kill yourself see we're here and his response is what must I do to be saved do you think he was asking how do I get to heaven or do you think how can I get clemency here How can I find a position that's going to bring what's good to me? Which one makes more sense? And then the introduction of Jesus into that story, isn't he taking Jesus and putting him into the role of the ruler who would have to make that decision? Because then he says, you and your whole family will be saved. Right? Again, when I was growing up, it's like, well, everyone's got to be responsible for their own salvation. How can the family be saved? And then we had to justify it. Oh, it was prophetic. Well, maybe it wasn't that at all. Maybe it meant something completely different to him. Paul uses this language almost like the style of a public honoring, just like we heard about Zeus. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, says, first of all, then I urge that all petitions, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and those who are in authority, so that they may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. Do you see how we're moving into a social level of those who have power? First thing, 
Verse three, this is good. And it pleases God, our savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. This is very much like those things that we heard about the emperors, but it's now being bestowed on Christ, putting him in a position of this kind of authority. And again, it just now changes how people would see this. So when the angels appear to the shepherds with this message in Luke 2, but the angel said to them, The angel said to the shepherds, don't be afraid for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a savior who is Messiah, the Lord was born for you in the city of David. What do you think the shepherds thought he meant? Most likely it was something akin to what Moses did. Most likely it was akin to what they understood a savior to be someone who is going to bring in this peace, someone who's going to bring in deliverance, someone who is going to help them where they are at. And it has this ring of political public decoration for the welfare of the empire under this person who is now the Messiah. God reigning through his agent, Jesus, the king. And so savior, saving, has this tone within it. In Titus chapter three, and in the pastoral epistles, Paul uses this title savior or the word save, savior, a lot. And those those books, he just, it's inundated with this concept. And in Titus chapter three, it says, but when the kindness of God, our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration, the renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out the spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And we see hope is another key word in these letters. The, the hope is not about the soul quietly going to heaven as much as it's about what is corrupted, what is broken, being redeemed, being renewed. That is a constant push in the, the New Testament. Behold, I will make all things new. He's not getting rid of everything. He is changing it under this reign, under this rule, under this savior. And so Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. Again, this is bringing into their minds the role of a leader the position that they're supposed to do for the people, but now it's for all people. Paul would say in Romans, he is making for himself one 
new humanity. He's not getting rid of everything. He is making all things new. And again, in Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is to the Sanhedrin, rulers of the people and elders. Again, who is he talking to? Rulers. If we are being examined today by a good deed done to this disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This is Jesus, the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to people where we must be saved by it. Having this background, that scripture has a little different flavor. And it's something at that time that they could have tangibly connected to. Here is a man who is healed. Salvation had that as part of its proposition. This is what Jesus did. Just like we talked last time about the man who was brought down through the roof and Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Who can forgive sins? Well, just so you know, I can forgive sins. Take up your bed and walk. Healing, forgiveness, salvation. These are all connected to one another. And so what Jesus is doing is now using his people to proclaim and continue his rule. What did Paul imagine we were being saved from? Now, I think there's more than one answer, right? But obviously, one is from our sins, right? Kind of a big picture. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the chief or foremost. And so even like Israel created me a clean heart, I need to be rescued from myself. That's definitely part of this salvation. But Paul was also aware of the bigger problem of evil and violence and their impact on everyone. Right? Earlier he said that you might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. What are we saved for? Paul, it doesn't seem, viewed salvation as an end to itself, but rather as a beginning. He uses the language of rebirth, renewal by the Holy Spirit, which imagines this exciting and just groundbreaking new society. Salvation is here. Why? Because look what it's doing in us. Look what it's doing in the people who are now under this ruler and the community it is producing. That's salvation for all men. And it's so much more tangible than I'm going to go to heaven when I die. It's something that we can see. And so now, James, can faith save you? That verse means so much more with this insight. If I see someone who's sick, you you tell them what? I'll give them food and that's going to save him. 
well, if this is an understanding of salvation, then yeah, that's going to produce what he needs. That's going to be part of this kingdom mentality and restoration. And so this isn't about, yeah, all you need to do is, you know, works to get to heaven. No, it's not about that. It's we work because we are part of what heaven is to be. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We are producing what the ruler has implemented, but now and through our lives. And so we are saved by grace through faith, but faith doesn't stand alone and salvation takes place in the actions that we do in community. And what do these reborn kingdom citizens do with this new life under the Savior? Paul emphasizes redemption for the purpose of action, specifically carrying out a holy calling. And whenever Paul talks about calling, he means that we are brought into divine service to achieve God's kingdom. That's what a holy calling is, right? Because I know we had some strange ideas of what a calling. Yeah, I've got a calling on my life. It's to, you know, do whatever it is. Well, if it's to produce more of what the kingdom is, then that's your holy calling. And in Acts, Peter gives a speech to the Sanhedrin leaders. It says in verse 29, but Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on the tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. We see that this idea of Savior continues throughout this, that of the ruler. And it's interesting because in the word word ruler in verse 31, in some translations it says prince, but the word ruler stands out because we don't usually get invited to accept Jesus Christ as our ruler. But that is something that works together with that word savior. Ruler and savior have that similar connection. They, they work with each other. We tend to associate salvation with an event and place. We are saved from our sins. Now we can go to heaven. But Acts makes it clear that Jesus' ministry of salvation goes beyond one event to his ruling over God's people, especially calling them to repent from following the way of the sinful world and to follow his true way. Peter goes on to talk about God's people as those who repent and obey. Being saved, it would seem, is far more than just being rescued. The saved need leadership. They need a tutor. They need a guide. They need help to flourish And this requires self-reflection, self-discipline, repentance, and obedience. This is all part of salvation. There is a story I read that kind of gives, I think, a good picture of all these things that I just kind of threw at you. Back in 1965 to 1966, there were six boys who 
ran away from their home in Tonga. They stole a boat. They got some food. They got a little burner to cook the food, and they got in a boat, and they were trying to make it to Fiji. They had no compass, no map, nothing to guide them. They weren't sailors. They just got in a boat and started going. Fiji was 500 miles from where they were So imagine getting in a boat with no idea and trying to go 500 miles in the sea and not being a person who knows anything. They were lost at sea for eight days, and they ended up landing on this island that was infertile called Atta, A-T-A. And they stayed there for 15 months. One of the boys broke his leg. The place was so desolate that they were drinking bird's blood to get hydrated because there was no fresh water. And then an Australian captain named Peter Warner happened upon them as he was traveling for work, and he rescued them from the island. Now, many times that's where the story would end. Oh, good ending, he rescued them. And I think sometimes that's kind of our idea of salvation. Oh, yes, Jesus found me, I'm saved. But the story doesn't end there. Because Warner took them back to Tonga where they were arrested for stealing the boat. But Warner had compassion on them and so he paid $200 to the boat owner to appease him so that they would not be imprisoned. And then he left his job in Sydney and came and started a fishing company there in Tonga, and he hired the six boys to come and work for him and provided work for them for decades. Later on, one of the boys said that they saw Warner as they would a father. And I think that this story is a clear picture of this idea of salvation, that it's not a one and done. Warner didn't just rescue the boys from that island, but he had compassion, concern. He had perseverance. He provided for them, helped them move forward in their lives. There's a difference between the simplistic saved, get out of hell free, and the type of salvation that we see in Christ that labors, that continues, that works within us, that is covenantial. It's relational. It's dynamic. It's all-encompassing. Salvation isn't the end, but the beginning. It's where we begin living as citizens of the kingdom of God. It is not a one and done. It's a daily happening. I've been saved throughout my life in so many ways. I've been saved by people who financially helped me when I needed it. I've been saved by people who emotionally supported me through times of difficulty. I've been saved by my grandkids. Their birth has brought life to me. I've been saved by this community that has encouraged me, that has allowed me to grow, given me room. These are all ways that I have been saved. I have been saved and am being saved by Jesus who continues to model for me how I am to live the way, the truth, and the life that convicts me of my self-centeredness, that provokes me to do love and good things, 
that helps me to see beyond myself by his spirit. Let's not make salvation less than what it is. Let's not make it static and reduce it to only a prayer or a moment at a time. Let's, let's unleash the power of what it is, the power that changed the world because it changed the people who were living in the world under a new ruler. And that's what it is to be the light of the world. It is to embody this salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would see the importance of making decisions to follow you daily. That we would understand how close and intertwined salvation is with our daily lives, our common routines and interactions with people. That we would embody the salvation by your spirit and how we live, how we're gracious, how we're kind, how we forgive, how we love. May salvation do a new and renewing work within our lives as we seek to follow in the steps of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. May you recognize and lean into your salvation. You have been... You are being and you will be saved. And your salvation is nearer today because of Jesus. God bless you guys. Have a great day. I look forward to our conversation. Take care. You have been listening to the Genesis podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.